0: I'm Eileen Darling and I'm Hannah Glaver. We used to work together at an evangelical church that held a hierarchical position on gender roles, a church that believed God had chosen men to fulfill the primary roles of spiritual leadership. This environment created some unique and significant challenges for us and the other women among us as we strive to pursue our respective callings from wage gaps and androcentric hiring practices to sexist standards and marginalizing expectations. We've reconnected to explore and process our experiences as well as the systemic issues behind them. And hopefully we'll shed some light on why gender hierarchy can't represent God's best for women, the church, or humanity. This is Stained Glass Seeming. At the church Hannah and I worked for, our leaders constantly told us our staff was a family. We were encouraged to invest in each other relationally, to build camaraderie and trust, and even the ability to be vulnerable and honest with one another in the face of conflict. But this fraternal work culture was complicated by one clear divide. We had a predominantly male executive and pastoral staff and a mostly female support staff. For the latter group, our relationships with our bosses were critical to accessing everything from professional mentorship to the information we needed to do our jobs. They also wielded significant influence over our trajectories at work. They determined our promotions and salaries, evaluated our performances, and spoke on our behalf to our church's less-than-accessible Council of Elders. So what happens when this empowered group of men is trained and advised to avoid spending time one-on-one with their female counterparts in order to preserve their integrity as spiritual leaders? This brings us to what we're going to talk about today, the Billy Graham rule, or rather, rules men put into place that exclude women in order to protect their reputations and remain above reproach. We're going to start this conversation in what may seem like an unusual place a story that includes the very kind of scenario these rules aim to prevent. We believe this story, particularly its aftermath and how the situation was handled by our church leaders, reveals some very important things about the power differential and the burdens these rules create for women in ministry spaces. So I used
1: to lead most Sundays, and when I got the promotion to be working full-time, I no longer could play every single Sunday. It was just way too many hours. And so I had to step back from one of the bands that I was leading. So there was a band practice on a Thursday night. And at our band practices, it was very common for us to have a beer, even like during the practice itself. It was very laid back. It's very Portland culture. It has been normalized from the very beginning. Um, and what we used to do after band practices is we all get drinks together. We were trying to create an arts community, so we didn't just want to have functional musicians. We wanted to have relationships with everybody involved, and we wanted it to be real and genuine. Um, So I get a text after that band practice, which I wasn't a part of, asking if I wanted to hang out with the band afterwards, which meant a lot to me. It was late. It was like maybe close to 10 p.m. I pack up and I head out um, to go get beers with the boys, and that was also very normal for me. I was a touring musician at the time, so me having drinks at night was not unusual. I got a text saying, like, hey, um, we decided to meet up on the roof. That text was from my boss, the worship pastor. Um, and I was like, well, cool, city view. <laughs> it sounded amazing. So I eagerly go up to the roof, and as I'm, like, closing the door behind me, I see that it's only... a uh, the The pastor and myself, and that the band was not there. In that moment, I kind of my conservative upbringing was like, oh, I don't know if this is allowed to happen. Is this weird? Is this unsafe? Um, but I quickly breezed by it because I was like, no, I mean, we're just bros. We're just hanging out. I just got this promotion, so we're like hanging out as as peers, as equals. Kind of upon closer inspection, it was pretty clear that he had been drinking, and had more beers at the ready. I was handed a, a bottle of beer and I started to drink, but I didn't finish. And we just hung out. We had conversations about our families, about like the future of the department. He talked about his his kids. I talked about like my future goals. It was just like normal human conversation that would have happened in any, any setting. It just happened to be on the roof. Both of us are talkers, and so we ended up talking much longer than I realized. And when I talk, I don't drink. But what I was a bit too naive to notice is that it was not the case (laughs) for my boss, and he finished off a good portion of the rest of the six-pack, and suddenly it was just way too late in the night. It was pushing two in the morning. This looks bad. This is way too late for the two of us to be alone on the roof of our church office building. And it's looking like you're not in a position to drive home. So now I, as the sober person in the scenario, have to make some decisions for you. As we were leaving, and this is so stupid, um, my, my boss suggests, he's like, what if we threw these bottles off the roof? Don't worry, we can clean them up. And he he proceeds to lop one, like, off the roof into, like, the, the parking lot below. So we threw it off the roof, and it landed with a fun, like, crash down below into our parking lot. After that, I, like, slowly maneuvered him downstairs. And it was a matter of keeping him upright as we walked down the hall. So I'm steadying him by the shoulders, and we're walking to the office. I turned on every light in the building because... I recognized that it looked weird, but there was no way of getting him home safely without it looking weird unless he drove himself home. We stayed until about 2.30, and I was so anxious the entire time because it just looked worse the longer that we were there. The next day, we started getting a series of phone calls. So apparently the neighbors across the street saw what they thought were teenagers throwing bottles off a roof in the middle of the night, called the front desk. Front desk called security, and security looked at the footage and sees me holding my boss around the shoulders, trying to walk him in a straight line down the hallways. That looks bad. There's nothing about that looks good. (laughs) So it was immediately brought to the executive pastor, because our church's lead pastor was on sabbatical. He was out of town. So the executive pastor, who was kind of making some of the main decisions, um, decided to not tell anybody. It was, let's shut down this information, keep it between only the people who know. So my boss, myself, the security guy, and then himself. Because we couldn't bother our lead pastor, who was on sabbatical. We had to wait to tell him until he had the availability to know. And that started... um, a summer of hell for me. We had been sworn to secrecy, accused of an affair, still forced to work with each other while being interrogated. And my boss went into immediate suspension. I immediately assumed all of my boss's responsibilities, but no one was allowed to know on the staff or the congregation. So he had to show up to everything if it was normal. And my boss's consequences were completely different than mine. He had to like read a bunch of books, see therapists, meet with a team of elders every week. I was brought into the executive pastor's office and I was asked to meet with them on a weekly basis, like super early in the morning before the staff even arrived, so no one thought anything of it. And in those meetings, I was asked if I had secret feelings for my boss if I was secretly touched. And then at the end of it, I was told that I probably did have feelings for my boss. Um, Even if I never realized that that was something, I, I might never understand that this is something that I have going on in me. Why else would I be motivated to show up like that in that environment? It's okay that I didn't know. And I was also forbidden to never tell anyone. It's like, make sure you don't tell anyone that this is happening. We don't, like, you don't want it to be leaked to the church. They won't understand and I wasn't doing well. So the emotional response for me, I started taking the blame for it. If, if I'm being accused of having an affair and I'm watching my, my boss, who I'm still meeting with on a regular basis, um, emotionally collapse, um, and I carried it. Um, and so I would go home and I would have nightmares. I'd wake up screaming. I have complete blanks in my memory about what happened over the course of those weeks, um, my roommates have memories of me just sitting and staring and crying. And so it got to the point where I asked, I actually asked for help from the executive pastor. I was like, "Going, I'm not doing well. You're giving my boss someone to talk to. Um, is there any resource for me? Um, and I was told no. I was like, can I can I process this with anybody? No, you can't tell your friends. They won't understand. You can't tell your family. They will not understand. Um, and so I asked for um, a pastor. I was like, going, you gave my boss like a team of pastors to meet with. Can I at least have a pastor? And I, I picked a good friend. Um, and then I threw out their wife's name too. So I was like, going, it's another girl. <laughs> Maybe you'll let me because if there's a girl involved. And they said yes to that, so I was able to process with those two people. And they're still some of my closest friends today. But outside of that, I've, I've still not told anybody. Though I didn't even go to therapy for it for years. Like I was so afraid of it being misunderstood that I didn't seek the help that I needed until after my time
0: on that staff. Um, so from the congregation's perspective, everything was meant to look... And the staff. As if, and the staff, as if nothing was going on.
1: No one on our staff unless they were chosen to know, knew. No one in the congregation knew, and probably to this day still don't know. And what breaks my heart is hearing hearsay of what happened afterwards. It clearly was leaked on an internal level, um, and the wrong information was leaked. The information that was shared was that I had feelings for my boss, probably, and that I was drunk. Like, a year after the whole roof incident, my, my anxiety started kicking in. Um, I don't know what triggered it, but I started having, like, some PTSD from all of it. And when I started reaching out for help, it was a character issue. Um, I was told I was being overdramatic. I needed to get over it. Why am I still stuck on the roof thing? And I was like, I'm not, I'm not trying to berate the roof thing. I'm saying maybe it affected me more than I realized. Like, it was a year ago. Like, your boss got through it. Why can't you get through it? Um, Which made me look crazier and more emotional. Um, And I know that I was um, processed about behind closed doors Um, because the conversations that I'd have with my boss in confidence, I would hear from other staff members coming to me going like, I hear you're not doing well. And I was like, that wasn't for you. Like, we're not... (laughs) Was there any HR involvement? Not with the roof at all. It was like fully circumvented. There was no protection for me. There was no HR. I was given the executive pastor's ear for the first couple weeks and then past that, nothing.
0: Thank you for being willing to share that, Hannah. If you don't mind me asking, how does it feel? I mean, it feels
1: vulnerable. I mean, exposing any of our former experiences after having been kind of like commanded to confidentiality prevented myself at least from even feeling like I had permission to process my own story and get the help that I needed to be able to unpack what I was experiencing. The emotional and psychological Um, repercussions of all of this, sent me spinning. I really needed to seek help. Um, But in order to not appear like I had feelings for my boss, which is what I was being accused of, I pretended like everything was okay, that all was forgiven, all was well. And so for four years, I operated kind of slowly mentally dwindling away um, and emotionally dwindling away, feeling so much shame. And no one corrected me. And that never should have been the case. And a lot of it just had to do with the fact that we just had nothing in place to protect me. I am concerned about the pushback, not because of what I think could be the content of this, which would be like beliefs of men and women's roles in a space, but it'd be the pushback of relationship issues between my former boss and myself and people missing the bigger story that we have to tell for this small story. It's like, this is a perfect example of why men and women shouldn't work together. And I hope that by sharing something like this, that even in spaces where mistakes are made, innocent ones, that men and women can still find a way to work. Um, In our case, we worked side by side for years afterwards, but very poorly um, because of how the system ran. We were almost like antagonistic behind the scenes. Um, And it took years. It took me leaving. It It took so long for both of us to kind of grow into who we are today, to be able to be on healthy speaking terms where we can actually be peers. It should not have taken that long. It didn't need to. We're really... Compatible humans. But because of the way that the situation was handled, it prevented us from being peers. It always kept me in a victim's position or him in a victim's position, and neither of us were able to grow. And what I hope is that by sharing some of these stories, it's not that we are sharing the worst of the worst and proving how we were wronged, but exposing maybe some flaws in the system. The system works really well for one thing and for certain people at the top. We are just hoping to expand the conversation to maybe include the possibility that maybe there's a better way, that maybe there doesn't have to be so many casualties along the way, that maybe we can preserve dignity um, and respect across the board, not just for the people at the top whose reputations we're protecting, but everybody's.
0: So one of the outcomes of that experience was that our executive pastor at the time put this rule into place that our bosses were advised to follow. The pastors, department heads were advised that they shouldn't be alone with their female staff members. Not to close the door, when in one-on-one meetings with us, not to ride in cars with us one-on-one, to work events. A couple interesting things about that. First of all, this wasn't a policy. It wasn't written down. It wasn't communicated across the board to our staff. It was just these male pastors and department heads who were told about it. And then the women were hearing about it in a very organic, word-of-mouth fashion.
1: Yeah, I mean, after many months um, and the situation on the roof was decidedly resolved... I had no idea. I had no idea. I thought I was moving forward. The entire church was moving forward. Things were back to normal. I was running an event um, for the city, and I was running it with a male coworker. We were about the same age, and we were about to get pizza afterwards. And my buddy leans over, and he's like, Hey, you ready to get pizza? i got to drive myself separately, especially after the rule that you hadn't acted. So It was like totally said as a joke. And I was like, "What do you, what do you mean?" He's like, "Yeah, because of the whole thing on the roof, people can't ride in cars with you." And I had no idea until that moment that there was a rule enacted because of me that women no longer were allowed to ride in cars. And this is a good friend; like, it wasn't even being said in an angry way. It was just it was so well known <laughs> that all of the male pastors knew to never be alone with their female coworkers.
0: I think I first heard about it from a female coworker whose boss had said like just so you know, I've been told to do this and not do this kind of a thing. The second thing that's interesting is that in our work environment this rule was pretty much unsustainable. You know, we had populated our staff with predominantly male pastors, predominantly male department heads. And predominantly female support staff. So many of these departments were two or three people, <laughs> wherein one was probably a woman. Sometimes two, if you had maybe a female director and a female administrative assistant. My boss ignored it entirely. I, I think never I did too. I never heard a bit about it from my <laughs> boss. Heard it only from other women whose bosses told them about it. Um, and we had to ignore it entirely because mm-hmm. we were one of those two person departments to not be allowed to meet one on one was to totally cut us off at the legs as far as the work that we were, you know, hired to do together. Yeah. yeah, I would lead practices with only men.
1: Only men. I would interview musicians. I would have like one on one coffee meetings or one on one audition with these musicians that I would be hopefully bringing onto our teams. I would have to have one-on-one meetings with my boss to make sure that we could run our department effectively. We'd have big team meetings, and then we'd meet one-on-one to make our big steering decisions as a team. Um, We no longer were healthy friends, but functionally it was impossible to do our job without meeting together.
0: And, of course, we still had the dynamic going of... Being told we're family, we're meant to be investing in one another, we're meant to be this relationally bound community. There was no space created in there for a rule like this. So even if it was a useful measure to avoid additional situations like the the roof, there was no way for our culture to practice it. And it put the women at a specific disadvantage. Not even
1: to their knowledge.
0: Yeah. yeah. They had no idea. They didn't know what was going on unless <laughs> and the congregation unless happened to- come across the information the
1: congregation knew even
0: less oh yeah (laughs) yeah i mean just across the board no department was following that rule within a year of it being put into place yeah um but the philosophy behind the rule i would say continued to have a really significant impact in our work environment and it helped create a culture in which it was acceptable to exclude women from all kinds of things Mm -hmm. you know easily justified i'm protecting my reputation Okay, do you want to talk about uh, the sandwich group? We did change the name
1: because we're trying to be like legit and kind. Mm -hmm. Um, But you want to talk about,
0: we're calling it BLT. Yeah, BLT is actually a really good example of the kind of culture I was just describing. It was kind of an admittedly cheeky acronym we had for three very long-standing influential pastors who were very close with one another pretty much every Thursday afternoon during work hours. BLT would walk to a brewery pretty close to our church campus, uh, have a few beers together, and talk about work stuff, you know, exchange ideas, brainstorm, innovate. The thing was, as they did that, a lot of times they also just made decisions to do those ideas and put them into effect and come back to our actual workspace and our actual work meetings with those ideas already rolling speedily along to implementation. And it
1: wasn't bad calls. It was just only involving them.
0: Yeah. So there were other people who were meant to be in the room to help shape those decisions. Or even, you know, as communications director, I wouldn't get asked, well, how long would it take to produce this kind of piece of work that you have to contribute to this initiative? So also timelines would be decided on without the people who would be doing the work in that timeline to say, this is a reasonable amount of time to do this work. We got into the situation where you have to make the choice of either trying to pull back the momentum and insert yourself into a place where you can help make that decision or just concede to the fact that you were excluded. And I will say, and I'm sure you've got stories about this, Hannah, but to make the decision to force yourself into the process was often received as like, wet blanket, killjoy, what? Come on. Why are you, you know? Sort of an attitude, which could be very frustrating.
1: We always were perceived as naysayers, and it it made us look bad. It made us look um, like Debbie Downers. It made us look unprofessional. Like our response was always it almost was perceived as emotional, and they were almost expecting it. They're like, "Well, here's Eileen. Oh, Hannah always has some kind of pushback." But in reality, it's like a lot of these things could have been decided in an earlier meeting and not just decided upon when you're browing out over beers or in a hot tub. All of those things are perfectly fine spaces to have discussions, but it should not be the place to have conclusions.
0: It also impacted not just our ability to do the work, but the work itself, because you're talking about major initiatives, big decisions happening in a space that's literally only populated with white married men in the pastoral role. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just about, hey, this is causing us problems or inconvenience, but it also really impacted our work and we weren't able to fulfill the roles that we were hired to bring to the table. I think one benefit of the doubt I always struggled with is that, okay, this isn't a gender hierarchy issue. It's not a gender issue. It's three guys who happen to be close friends and want to go spend time with each other and drink beer and talk about work okay, cool. However, um, I got to the point actually where I was doing work on weekends because some of the decisions they made had timelines for me that were shorter than I could fulfill if I was only working my five work days. So eventually I took it to my boss, who was the new executive pastor. And um, I told him what was going on. And I said, look, this is starting to cause some real problems for me at work. I'm not able to speak into these decisions and provide you know, the communications perspective that's needed even when we're talking about timelines and things and the answer i got and to be clear i wasn't saying i would like to be invited on these beer runs like that wasn't what i was after at all i was more of like we need something in place to prevent our decisions being made in such limited spaces that women are excluded from and his response was well they're never going to invite you on those trips it's wise for them not to they've been trained and taught and advised not to include you in those beer runs because you are a woman because it's not safe because it's how they protect their reputation and remain above reproach i left that conversation very, feeling very helpless because what i heard was i just have to deal with it without any help
1: so where are men getting this idea that not spending one-on-one time with women is important in order to protect their reputations
0: Well, one source I hear people invoke a ton as they follow this is the Billy Graham rule. So evangelist Billy Graham is this huge hero and role model to many people who serve in ministry. In 1948, he and his ministry team put together this thing called the Modesto Manifesto. And this manifesto was the result of a series of conversations they had about the challenges of ministry life and how to uphold the highest standard of biblical morality and integrity. And one of the things they put down in that manifesto was how to address the danger of sexual immorality. In an article about the Modesto Manifesto, Billy Graham said, We all knew of evangelists who had fallen into immorality while separated from their families by travel. We pledged among ourselves to avoid any situation that would have even the appearance of compromise or suspicion. From that day on, I did not travel, meet, or eat alone with a woman other than my wife. We determined that the Apostle Paul's mandate to the young Pastor Timothy would be ours as well. And this is from 2 Timothy one twenty two, Flee Youthful Lusts. Well, what happens when the women in those spaces then become essentially potential objects of lust?
1: I think it puts both parties in the unfortunate position of women always being perceived as potentially dangerous, mm-hmm. um, possibly misleading their male counterparts, or men always being perceived as sexual predators. Um, and that means there's never co-working. There's only fear and massive assumptions on both sides, and so there's that you can't move forward from that if everybody is assumed to either be tempting you into sin um, or preying upon you. There, that is so anxiety-ridden. I can hear the argument of, like, this is a spiritual leader we're talking about. This isn't a corporate boss, and I do think it's very important for our spiritual leaders, to be living fully above reproach. But I don't know that it means excluding the humanity and dignity and respect of the people around them. Yeah. When
0: it does, I'd say that becomes a reason for reproach. Ooh. <laughs> 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 it was involuntary. Ooh. Yeah, I, I mean, me. in the context of this rule, we've started to... So, I kind of equate the idea of above reproach as sexually pure, I suppose. But mm-hmm. there are many more dynamics going on in this issue than that. If you're a spiritual leader overseeing other spiritual leaders, some of whom are women, you do have a responsibility to create an environment in which they can flourish as much as you can. Mm-hmm. And exclusionary rules like the Billy Graham rule are just a lazy way of tackling that. I am in a job right now where I talk to a lot of churches and I spend a lot of time seeing who is and isn't on church staffs. And you continue to see largely male elder boards, largely male pastoral staffs, and largely female skills-based and support staff. So we're still talking about this space where there's still a divide, still a power differential in our ministry environments. So... If the Billy Graham rule existed in each of those environments, it's going to create an access problem for women. And we're not just talking access like promotions and raises, but access to mentorship, access to spiritual formation, access to the things they need to do their part in the ministry. Often the way we as women respond to this situation is to shape ourselves to fit these androcentric environments and agendas so that the men around us will engage with us, at least in some spaces. And in fact, I'd say in some circumstances, I was trained to do this. We had a sort of chief administrative assistant who led us through a meeting about proper dress so that we're you know kind of guarding and protecting the men in our midst. That is an example of us shaping ourselves to be more safe (laughs) so that we can engage and collaborate to the level that we need to, to do our thing, to pursue our vocations. I feel like you've talked about this a little bit before, but even just trying to avoid femininity.
1: Yeah, oh my gosh. I was on the stage on a regular basis. Like I was made aware at a young age that my my body communicated something and it was my responsibility for everybody else that I didn't make them stumble. That's normative for a lot of Christian girls. Um, I would actually try to be as sexually neutral as possible. Um, And I am not a, a small woman like i i have definite curves i would wear shapeless clothes so that i wouldn't make anyone stumble um but on a sunday morning i was acutely aware of what i appeared like and i wanted to be taken very seriously so i made a conscious decision to never appear overtly feminine as a worship leader um i'll never forget being asked to arrange a song for a sunday morning in between services Um, having my boss come up to me saying that the lead pastor um, said that that version of the song was too feminine and too weak. And so I changed from that point on, I changed the way that I led worship altogether. Um, I changed the way that I played music because weakness and femininity were equal and it would compromise the integrity of an entire service. I changed the way that I talked I unconsciously developed a tone of speaking that mimicked the style of speaking that I would hear a lot of my male counterparts speaking. And I also essentially learned, I I call it like my bro talk, bro. Like, I mean, like, come on. Oh yeah, man. Like, I mean, I was, I was very much myself, but I would be overtly and intentionally masculine so that they would feel comfortable in the space with me as a single woman and it was the safest possible thing I could do, but I was transforming a lot of my actions so that I could be taken more seriously by my, the male counterparts around me. I don't know that it made me be taken more seriously, though.
0: One thing I did, it became clear to me pretty quickly that one thing that was particularly threatening to a lot of the men I encountered in my role was um, when women had pastoral ambitions or were pursuing pastoral authority. So one thing I did to make myself feel like a safer person to engage with at work was to make it very, very clear that I was a communications professional. My approach was like, oh, I'm fine, I'm okay because I don't want to be a pastor. What sucks about that so much is that there were women around me who did have pastoral ambitions and did have ways they wanted to contribute that were very pastoral. You know, it's like a problematic response to a problematic situation. Eventually, one of the other pastors on our executive team initiated a Thursday afternoon meeting for all the pastors and directors on our staff. And these meetings took place at one of the same breweries that uh, BLT would frequent for their work hangs, which, by the way, uh, drinking was not banned after the roof incident. No, it's, it's like Portland culture. It's very normal. So what changed in this situation was that instead of BLT going out for their Thursday afternoon beer runs, we all went out for Thursday afternoon beer runs. I loved it. I yeah. had a lot of fun. And though the pastor who founded this meeting never explicitly said anything about it, we kind of all imagined the meeting was created in part to level the playing field with the, the kind of work that was happening there. It, it was, actually was said. It was said overtly in that first meeting. Really? I don't yeah. remember that. He said, <laughs> it was
1: like the first time we were meeting, he's like, I want you guys to look around the table. And I want you guys to tell me what you notice. And I'm like, we're all gathered here together. There's beer. This is a very fun thing to do. No. It's unique because the women are invited. Some of you have been meeting here on a regular basis and not inviting women. And that ends today. Like we are no longer having secret meetings where we're making decisions for the staff and for the future of our our church without everybody being invited to the table
0: so that that is one thing that can be done create spaces women are invited to that are safe like it's a shared meal it's a shared
1: conversation in a public space like it's it's not terribly complicated whatever that looks has like for you that
0: that relational communal vibe to it. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's away from the office. We're breaking out of our office boxes and such. And so it does create a place where we can kind of have those really innovative, off the cuff meetings like BLT was having at their beer runs, but everyone is there. It was very nice. At one of those first meetings, um, one of the BLT pastors who I will call B pastor B, um, brought up an issue he was having with a lay leader. And uh, as B was telling us about it, he said he wanted to know our thoughts, and he said, especially the women. I especially want to know what the women think about this. This lay leader was the only woman among a small team he worked with to help engage the church community in serving the city. So B had gone out to a party one night, and the other male members of this team were, were there too. So they started chatting, they came up with a great idea for their work, And uh, by the time the party was over, they're like, yep, let's do it. Let's put this idea into place. And by the time the woman leader learned about the idea, she was not at the party. The guys were speedily rolling it into implementation. Um, And Pastor B was very taken aback when this leader expressed frustration toward the men for excluding her. And even more so when she cited it as an example of gender discrimination. What Pastor B told us was, I don't understand what I should have done differently. He said, "There's nothing wrong with me spending time with people I work with, who are also my friends, and I also don't think it's wrong if work ideas come up while we're hanging out." And I remember, as soon as he was done, I was kind of like ready to pounce because I'd been thinking about this a lot. Because I found myself in the in fact I, I think I had to like not look at you, Hannah, when this was going on. Because I was like, if I look at her, I'll be, I was I'm going to communicate it. something, and it'll 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 throw this off. It won't be a, it won't be a congenial conversation oh, anymore. No. But I definitely wanted to see, you know, this is like an invitation to discuss this well, right? What I said to him was that I'd experienced this tendency in church culture to leave women out of the networking and relationship building opportunities that happen, particularly the ones that happen in off-the-clock social settings. And I recognize that sometimes that can be beyond an individual like Pastor B's control. You know, he went to a party, other work dudes were there, they started talking. Okay, cool. But what he could have done was be a little bit more mindful about who wasn't in the mix in that conversation and the integral role they have to participate in that conversation. So it's like, okay, yeah, brainstorm, but then stop, notice who's not there, and then bring that person in before making the decision or before it's too late for them to bring the role they contribute into that conversation. and. In particularly, don't make it that person's responsibility to catch up. Or punish them
1: if they have pushback to an idea that they were not included in. And now they, one, have to like kind of clean up after the mess. Or two, it's not practically possible.
0: Yeah. And the other thing I told him was, hey, you know what? You're an influential dude, both in ministry and in city outreach. Maybe use some of that networking clout to welcome this leader into those spaces. In our last conversation, we talked about how um, our elders ended their position paper on women in ministry with the acknowledgement that the complementarian position has been used to oppress women in the past. And basically how they address that is saying, we pray and desire to do better. And I feel like this rule is kind of an example of that is... The intent is good, right? want to protect everybody, protect in a literal sense, as well as protect reputations and integrity. But once again, we have the problem of when there's a lack of representation, a lack of women in those higher-up positions, this becomes a system wherein women are excluded and find themselves marginalized. When men are calling these shots and women are just left to sort of deal with the consequences of them. So Hannah, if you're willing to share... I'd like to hear a little bit more about what you've taken away from your experience with the roof and everything. What would you say to someone who takes the position of, well, if you'd only followed this rule, none of this would have happened to you? Well, I want to say two
1: things. Um, one, I do think there are legitimate scenarios um, relationally between people in power, whether it be a pastor or a church leader um, and people who are, underneath them in power um that are unhealthy and perhaps unsafe especially in this day and age there's a lot of things being exposed so i do want to speak to that um and also like legitimize the fact that this does occur there are very unsafe scenarios without accountability there are Mm -hmm. unsafe people without accountability that put people into compromising situations um at the end of the day, though, I do believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is completely and entirely possible for men and women to have very safe, normal, neutral, healthy, flourishing relationships with one another in the workplace. I mean, I could have totally followed the rule. Um, I showed up in a safe space as a friend, um, and I saw a friend that needed another friend, and I stayed. I would not change that. In a conservative Christian perspective, I could have walked into the scenario seen that my boss was alone. I mean, I could have been like, this is uncomfortable. I'm going to go home. This is weird. I feel weird about this. And that would have been embarrassing and shaming, um, but it would have, quote, kept us pure, like above reproach. But the moment didn't call for it. Um, I stayed to stay with a friend. And that's what we did. We just talked too long.
0: I've never heard you say this before, but it sounds like you are saying it now, that that experience did not change the way you approach relationships with people like your boss, mm-hmm. even though it was a diff- such a difficult experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, if I see a person... I I see them as an equal. And so I see a person in crisis. I see a person in the midst of joy, like whatever, wherever they're at, I want to meet them where they're at. I think that's like the way that we're supposed to interact with one another. I'm treating everybody in the same way that I'm hoping that I'm being respected. I approach people with like wonder and anticipation, and I'm curious to get to know them as them versus... Assume that I don't have access relationally to people because I know that there's been a lot of trust broken, but I want to hope for a better future where we actually, I, I believe it can happen. I've seen it happen where people can work side by side as equals with complete dignity and respect and you have a flourishing working space and hopefully a flourishing life.
0: What might start helping to replace the Billy Graham role as a way to allow people to have genuine community in a safe way without excluding, like, a good chunk.
1: I think there is hope for the church, for men and women to work together as equals. I think we need to own up for the fact that it has not, one, been a safe environment, and two, been an equal environment. And then not just confess it, but, like, actually make active steps for changing it. I think... Dignity needs to be restored. And those people who are on the sidelines, we need to elevate. We need to restore voices, make extra effort to have those voices better represented in those spaces. If if the issue is the potential danger of something happening, I think you have better modes of accountability in place. Having a true and accurate HR department so that when a crisis arises, God forbid... There's actually protection for the people involved, and there's ramifications for the pastors or, like, congregants or coworkers involved. Um, but that also, like, establishes a level of trust for the coworkers. Like, you, you're, you're trusting each other because you know a system's in place. We kind of assume that like, well, we don't need to do that because we're, we are above reproach.
0: We're a we family.
1: All, we're a family. And as a family, we make family decisions. But in families, there's also family secrets. And conflict. And not a lot of confrontation, especially when there's a massive power dynamic um, difference. But we do have systems in place in the real world today where people work together as equals, and shouldn't the church be at the forefront of something like that? If we are best image-bearing God, shouldn't it be in the fullness of ourself, of both women and men, both single and married, both old and young, diverse in perspective, diverse in race, diverse in experience, shouldn't it be everybody at the table? God and love others, the two greatest commandments in the Bible. I believe that you can't truly love a person until you actually know them, see them, hear their stories, and continue to learn from them. Otherwise you're loving your version of them and not actually them in real time. We are image bearers, uniquely and lovingly made. May we fight to see one another well, learn from each other, and grow with each other. Because turns out, you're very lovable. And with that, we conclude our second episode. Thank you again for listening. Thanks again to Kenya and to Becca for keeping the podcast ship afloat and to Alan for mastering these tracks. Today's episode features music off my record so far so long. And like last time, we will list all of the resources mentioned in today's podcast in our show notes. We are doing weekly releases for the next several weeks, so stay tuned for next week's episode lovingly titled, Modesty Codes, Celibacy Pledges, and Wage Gaps. See you then!